The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those who are visiting, my name's Paul. I am one of the pastors here. It's a joy to worship with you on this beautiful Charleston morning. If you're someone who likes robust sermons, today's sermon is for you. If you're here and you're not used to expositional sermons, well, (laughs) get ready. Because there's a lot, like Drew said, there's a lot here to encourage us, to challenge us, to move us, not just towards other people, but towards the Lord. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into God's word together. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. Be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by asking everyone this question. Have you ever been rescued by a total stranger? This is a picture of one of Carly's best friends, Maria. A Uruguayan-American, Maria is one of the sweetest and funniest people we know. Well, in 1990, now I know a lot of you weren't born in 1990, but in 1990, when Maria was a senior in college, the unthinkable happened. As she drove down I-95 in South Florida in the middle of the night, her car blew a tire, and then it spun out of control. Eventually, the car crashed into the interstate's embankment, On the other side of the interstate's ditch and a cloud of dust settled over the vehicle. Thanks be to God, Maria was not hurt in the accident. However, despite escaping injury, she quickly realized the seriousness, the direness of her situation. 
As a 20-year-old woman, she was virtually helpless in the middle of nowhere, in the pitch black of night, all alone. Just picture it. Be it your daughter, a friend, or yourself. Crashed out, helpless, in the middle of nowhere, in the pitch black of night, all alone. Keep in mind, young folk, that this was before the invention of the cell phone. Consequently, our friend was terrified. And so she just sat in her vehicle and waited and waited and waited, praying for a police officer to show up. And eventually someone did show up, but it wasn't a cop. No, it was just some 20-something-year-old dude in a tiny little hatchback. And given the circumstances and all she knew about crime, this triggered her senses. Ma'am, are, are you okay? He cried out. No, I spun out. But please, stay right where you are. She screamed back. What? Do you, do you want some help, ma'am? Yes, I want help. But I don't know you. Stay right where you are. She screamed. Confused, the guy paused and said, ma'am, I'm just here to help you. Do you want me to look at your vehicle? And after contemplating her options, Maria finally yelled back, sure, I think I blew a tire, but just first allow me to walk away from my vehicle. So the guy threw her a flashlight. She didn't even have a flashlight and honored her request. She got out of her vehicle. She backed away. He then came over to look at her tires and believing he saw a flat, the guy next retrieved a jack from his vehicle and went to work on her tire. All seemed to be going well, until it wasn't. You see, out of nowhere that night, the guy screamed. He screamed, you guys. And obviously this further terrified Maria. Fire ants, fire ants. I, I think I'm standing in fire ants. And because she was all alone in the middle of, the no, in the middle of nowhere in the pitch black of night, somewhere off I-95, she did not care about his screaming. Do you know what she told me she did? She got ready to fight him. She thought it was all a trick. Nonetheless, he kept helping her, kept working on her vehicle, even despite continuing to get bit by fire ants, until he came uh, to the unfortunate conclusion that not just one of her tires, but three of her tires were blown out. And it was, it was helpless. Ma'am, he called out, your, your car is shot. I can't fix it. Why don't you let me drive you to get help? No way, she said, no way. Well, I'm not just gonna leave you out here all by yourself. Well, I'm not gonna get in your vehicle. Again, I don't know who you are. And there in 1990, friends, in the pitch black of night, somewhere in a ditch off of I-95 in South Florida, an awkward standoff took place. <laughs> on one side was Maria, our good friend, and on the other side was some random dude, a total stranger. So how did the story end? Good question. After going back and forth for some time, the guy eventually gave Maria, listen to this, his license. She said, let me see your license. So he put, put it on uh, the hood and walked away. She then took his license, took her eyeliner, because she didn't have a pen, and wrote down his name, address, and driver's license number on a piece of paper and locked it in her vehicle. Next, she convinced the guy to give her his keys. He gave Maria his keys. And because she was too afraid to let this guy drive in the front or back seat, this is true, 
he sat in the back of his hatchback with his feet dangling out of the vehicle with the hatch wide open. And then they drove to safety. They drove to get additional help. It's a crazy story, right? It's crazy, but true. And for some unknown reason, this total stranger risked his life and perhaps his sanity to help Maria. Again, let me ask you, have you ever been rescued or saved by a total stranger? Today's passage is all about a total stranger, right? Helping someone in need. Known as the parable of the good Samaritan, Jesus's words are meant to both comfort and convict us. Comfort and convict us in some way, shape, or form. And so I'm excited to dive into Luke 10 with you. This leads us to our big idea, the big takeaway from Luke 10. If we ever dare to limit Christ's love for others, we're in danger of missing it ourselves. If we ever dare to limit Christ's love for others, we're in danger of missing it ourselves. That's what we'll see today. And just as the parable moves quickly, we're gonna move quickly through multiple points. Just a heads up, multiple points. In Christ's love, there's no limit to the where. In Christ's love, there's no limit to the uh, who. In Christ's love, there's no limit to the what. And last but not least, in Christ's love, there's no doubt in the why. One of these points will be very small, so we'll move quickly. Point one, in Christ's love, there's no limit to the where, to the where. Starting with verse 25, here's what we read. And behold, a lawyer stood, stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, so Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So first, the context of our text. In our passage, Jesus is being called out. You see it? He's being confronted by a leader in public. And we see this happen time and time again in the gospels with Jesus. Be it over pride or power, people try to call out Jesus. We see that it's not just a random person, it's a lawyer. So it begs that we ask this question. Is this a lawyer in the sense that we know lawyers today? Is it? Don't scream, call. <laughs> Don't scream, call Hakeem. Is that what we're looking at here? The answer is most definitely no. The answer is most definitely no. Rather, to be a lawyer in that day meant you were an expert in the law, meaning the Jewish law, the law of Moses, got it? Thus the lawyer in our passage was challenging Jesus in faith over his knowledge and fidelity of the Old Testament. And he wanted to expose Jesus publicly, that Jesus was a fraud. Moreover, just through the tone and him standing up posturing, we can easily uh, deduce that this man thought he was superior to Jesus and he was showing off. Not smart guys, not smart at all, right? So here we have a lawyer, Mia, an expert in the Jewish law, grandstanding, 
So how did Jesus respond? Did he rebuke the man? Well, not exactly. Rather, when the man keeps pushing Jesus and even sarcastically asks, so Jesus, who's my neighbor, right? Jesus tells him a story and it begins with the where. In story form, Jesus basically begins by asking this, answering this first question, where is my neighbor? Got it? Where's my neighbor? And he starts by sharing that an unknown man was leaving Jerusalem when he was robbed, stripped, beaten to a pulp, and left for dead. Now, first, given that this man was coming from Jerusalem and Jesus's original audience, it can be assumed that this man was a Jew. So in Jesus's parable here, a Jew was beaten and left for dead in the ditch. And where did this crime take place? He was traveling from Jerusalem to where? So why is this significant? Well, it's significant because every single person in the room that day would have known exactly the place Jesus was talking about. Listen, historically called the bloody way. Have you ever heard that? Called the bloody way for how dangerous it was. This path from Jerusalem to Jericho included a 3,300 foot descent. We got some hikers in the room. 3,300 foot descent through twisting, treacherous, mountainous terrain and was 17 miles long. Consequently, it had lots of uh, caves and cliffs. It was a perfect place for illegal activity outside of Jerusalem. And what we read about here and in other places, there were violent crimes committed on this path or roadway, including robberies. And so interestingly, Jesus sets this parable in that place. Now, bringing this into the room, I know none of us here grew up in ancient Israel. So this bloody way may be hard for us to imagine. That's why theologians suggest doing this. Imagine, they say, navigating the darkest of alleys in the worst city possible in the dead of night all by yourself. The nearest street light is miles away. So imagine that. You're in the darkest alley in the worst part of a city, in the worst city you can imagine, all by yourself. How would you feel? You'd feel fearful, right? Again, that's the picture Jesus paints. Why would he paint? Why would he start this parable painting such a dark and dangerous picture? Here's why. Because in Christ's love, there is no limit to the where. There's no limit to the where, meaning no path, no alley, no neighborhood, in no place on this earth are meant to be off limits to our affection and our attention as followers of Jesus. No place is to be off limits. In other words, every where, every place matters to Jesus. Are you with me? Point one, there's no limit to the where. Point two, in Christ's love, there's no limit to the who. The passage continues, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw the beaten man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had Frederick compassion. Another story. In 1970, a social experiment was done at Princeton Theological Seminary. Here's how it went down. I see you, Princeton grads. Here's how it went down. 40 seminarians were broken into various groups and told that they had to make impromptu speeches across campus, either on their religious education or this exact parable. 
40 seminarians. Now, what these students didn't know was that a man was planted by the organizers of this study in an alley on their route to their speeches in the five degree winter weather without adequate clothing, slumped over and coughing. In other words, they, they placed what looked like a homeless man in their path. And the researchers wanted to discover whether the duty upon the seminarians or their time crunch or just general indifference would trump mercy in their lives. So friends, out of the 40 seminarians, let me ask, how many do you think offered to help the apparent homeless man? Any guesses? 16. Only 16 out of the 40 offered to help the man, and most of them simply offered to help by telling someone in the building that they arrived to that there was a man in need outside. Listen, out of the 40 future pastors, only like three or four actually physically stopped to help the man. I bring the story to you via theologian Craig Bloomberg, and it brings us back to our passage today. As Jesus shared today's parable to his Jewish audience, they would have been outraged. It would have rocked them to their core. Why? Because first it showed their hypocrisy. Jesus tells them a priest first came down the road, saw the beaten, bloodied man, and he offered to help. No, he crossed the, to the other side of the road and kept going. Friends, this is a man whose vocation was to help those in need, to, to demonstrate the love of Christ, a man of the cloth, but what did he do? He ignored the man. Next, a Levite came down the path. Did he offer to help the man, Trey? No, he crossed the street. Well, who were Levites? Well, they were in charge of like the liturgy and worship, like Dwayne, helping lead worship services. Did he offer to help the man? No, he crossed the street, went on his way. Listen, both of these men would have known what they had just answered earlier to Jesus, what the lawyer had earlier said, to love our neighbors as ourselves. But they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. They knew the word of God, but failed to live it out. And this is meant to be a warning for each one of us. So moving along, next we see the first twist. There's a huge twist at the end, but the first twist is this. Who helps the man? A Samaritan. And this character placement would have felt like a lightning bolt to Jesus's original audience. Why? Because Jews hated, and I mean hated, Samaritans. According to one historian, Samaritans were seen as, quote, half-breeds, criminals, and traitors by the Jews. And as another expounds on this point, quote, the hatred between Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years and centered around racial purity because while the Jews had kept their purity during their Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. In the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were, quote, compromising mongrels. Also, the Samaritans had built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, only to have it destroyed by whom? The Jews during the Maccabean time. So in Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and utterly implacable. The rabbis would say, let no man eat the bread of the Kuthites or Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is he who eats swine's flesh. Not nice. Strong words. So you can only imagine the fire of emotions that lit up the room when the hero of Jesus' parable is a Samaritan. A Samaritan, not a Jew. Why would Jesus be so provocative? Here's why. 
Because just as everywhere matters to Jesus, absolutely everyone matters to Jesus. Just as everywhere matters to Jesus, absolutely everyone matters to Jesus. Bringing this into our lives, that person, that group, that nation, that party that you despise, Jesus sees them as our neighbor. Consequently, he calls us to love them. That black guy, Jesus says, love that guy. That white guy, Jesus says, love that guy. That Asian man, you're to love that man. That Central American woman, you're to love her. That Democrat, you're to love him. That right-wing conspiracist, you're to love him. That Palestinian, you're to love him. That Jewish person, you're to love him. Yes, that person you absolutely cannot stand. Yes, Jesus says, you're to love them. Why? Because they're your neighbor. Friends, as followers of Jesus, don't we dare try to fence in God's love and mercy? Absolutely every person on this planet is our neighbor. Point two, in Christ's love, there's no limit to the, not only the where, but the who. And this is the quickest point of all. Point three, there's also no limit to the what. What do we read here happens? He, the Samaritan, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat, excuse me, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more I, uh, you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And again, this is gonna be a quick point because it's just so explicit, but here it is. Gospel love is risky, it's messy, and it's costly in the what. It's risky, it's messy, and it's costly. This man stopped and that would have put his life in danger, just like the one who was robbed. There's great reason to keep moving. He didn't. He stopped to help the man. Would we do the same? Would I do the same? Let me keep it real. I don't know. Second, it's messy. We read, he went on, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In other words, he, he disinfected the man's wounds and his body. And then we, we read, he placed him on his animal, which likely would have been a donkey. And, and given the arid uh, climate, there would have been dust flying everywhere. So likely there's blood and dust all over the hands. Just keeping it real, all over the hands of the Samaritan on his arms and on his clothes. Gospel love can be messy. And then it's costly. It's costly. We go on to read that this man not only put the, the hurting man on his animal, he took him to an inn and then he paid for this man's overnight staying with him. He canceled his schedule and he stayed with the man. Then he essentially wrote an open check to take care of this man. I'll pay whatever it costs, take care of this man. In other words, the man's love was extravagant in both time and resource. Again, bringing this into the room, it, it demands, I ask, do I love like that? Does our church love like that? Or do we love in some other kind of way? Do we even care? So there's no limit to the where, there's no limit to the who, there's no limit to the what. And this is for the biggest twist of all. Point four, in Christ's love, there's no doubt about the why. There's no doubt about the why. As we conclude our passage, let me ask, was Jesus's point in telling this whole passage to offer conviction to the arrogant people then and now and give us a moral story to follow? 
And I'd like to say, no, there's something much richer and deeper here. Look at this with me. When the Samaritan saw the bloodied man on the side of the road, what do we read he felt? What did he feel? What's that word? Compassion, compassion. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he, he felt what? He felt compassion. That was his motivation. That was the motivation of the Samaritan's heart. And this word compassion comes from a really interesting a complex word in the Greek called splunk nizomai. All at once, we're going to say it. No, we're not. Look, just look at the word splunk nizomai. It's a weird word, right? I will never be able to spell it. Some of you, however, are in the medical profession. And you might know what this word means. We had two on the front row in the first service that knew what this word meant. Splunkology, you ever heard of that? It's the study of what? It's the study of visceral organs. That's that is the digestive, the urinary, the reproductive, and respiratory systems. Thus, when we read that the Samaritan was moved by compassion, it literally means he felt a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, heavy-breathing kind of love for this man. He felt compassion, that depth of compassion. That's what caused him to stop. And guess who else we read felt this again and again and again in the scriptures? Jesus. 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 Matthew chapter nine, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease, every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. A gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, heavy breathing kind of love because they were distressed and dejected like a sheep without a shepherd. Can you relate distressed and dejected. He felt compassion for them. When two blind men asked Jesus to heal them in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Moreover, don't miss this one fellowship. Who came to be the ultimate neighbor for you and for me? John chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled or neighbored. It's literally the picture we're given there to neighbor amongst us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you see it? Do you see the meta, meta narrative here with Jesus at the center? One fellowship, this parable is not primarily about being a good person. It's about all of us seeing that out of compassion, no matter the risk, no matter the mess, and no matter the cost, Jesus came to pull you and me out of the ditch. That's what we're meant to see. You see, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the ultimate good neighbor. When we were utterly helpless, Romans chapter five, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Thus, point four, in Christ's love, there's no doubt at all about the why. God loves you, Ryan. God loves you, Jennifer. God loves you, Karen. How do we know? We know because he sent his son Jesus to risk everything and give everything for you and for me. God loves you and me. And this is gospel. This is good news. 
And to this last point, listen, until we understand the depth of this mercy, the scandalous grace of Jesus's love, everything we do for others will have mixed motives. Until you understand the grace of Jesus in your own heart, your giving will be mixed. Your service will be mixed. It might be for public gain or notoriety. It might be to try to build a case for God, prove yourself. In the words of Tim Keller, you will never be a radical neighbor until you're radically neighbored by Jesus. And so with that, allow me to leave you with two applications. First, let Jesus be the good Samaritan you need him to be in your life today. Let him see you let him bandage you. Let him care for you. Let him love you. Would you allow him to draw close to you whatever you're going through right now in your life? Yes, life is full of pain and suffering and his grace is enough. He wants to draw near to you. Second, here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Danny, love your neighbor as yourself. Megan, love your neighbor as yourself. Love everywhere. Listen, love everywhere. Love everyone with great risk, no matter the mess and no matter the cost. How does that sound? What if we dared to do that as a church? What difference would it make? If we dare to limit Christ's love for others, we are in danger, friends, of missing it ourselves. Let's not miss it. Let's let him pull us up from the ditch, love us, fill us, and send us to do likewise. How's that sound? Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this parable that's meant to correct and call us to surrender and to action. God, first we surrender. Would you be the ultimate neighbor to us right now? Would you clean us up, bandage us, and love us? Your love is enough. Your grace is enough. Your affection is enough. And God, send us, send us. May we have your eyes as we go about our lives, as we live in our neighborhoods, go to our schools, go to our workplaces, travel. May we not go to the other side of the road. Convict me, convict us. Clean up our motives. May we give out of the grace that you've richly given to us. We pray this for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.